Hello and welcome to Climactic. My name is Simon Moore, I'm from Leeds in England and this is a special show where I'll be reporting back from COP26 in Glasgow. Today is Sunday 31st of October 2021. Yep, it's Halloween, but more importantly it's the first day of the two weeks of COP26, the 26th Conference of the Parties. I'm currently in Edinburgh in Scotland and tomorrow I'll be getting the train to Glasgow to take part in this historic global climate conference. I'm super fortunate to have this opportunity to attend and I've got some fairly busy plans ahead but I'll be doing my best to share as much of my experience with you as possible. On some days I'll be working in the green zone, that's the official public area where there's events and exhibits throughout the fortnight. I'll be representing one of the projects I work for, the Place-Based Climate Action Network, which has helped set up climate commissions around the UK. I'll also be taken to the streets with Fridays for Future on the 5th of November and again the next day with the Global March for Climate Justice. Also helping to run a workshop with a community project I work for called Climate Action Leads. Then I'm heading back to Leeds as we're running a Yorkshire Climate Summit, the first one ever, on the 10th of November. Now this is my first COP, so I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but I'm hoping to bring you interviews and audio so that you get a flavour of what it's all about. If you're hoping for updates on the negotiations, not really involved in those, slightly above my pay grade. I'm sure we'll be hearing snippets though as they progress. Hopefully this show will let you meet some of the thousands of COP delegates working like mad to avert climate and ecological breakdown. So, thanks for listening and being here. Let's hope the negotiations go well. But whatever happens, let's keep pushing for climate justice. Stop, stop. 
thank you for coming to Glasgow to discuss our future. After all, we do not know what is good for us. You know what's best for us. Thank you, Joe Biden. Thank you, Boris Johnson. Thank you, Angela Merkel. Thank you, Macron. Thank you, Scott Morrison. If it was not for you, we would not know what to do. So it is important you are discussing our future. Our future is in the hands of our imperial overlords, as it should and has always been. So come, yes, come and bow before our imperial master. It is very important to us that you are bowing before them. Come on, they are only here for two days. We must make the most of them being here. Look at all the armed forces vehicles. They are here especially for our imperial masters. Thank you. Joe Biden is just after... Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Daisy. Well, I'm part of Youth for Climate Leeds. So I'm coming on Friday for the Youth March, which I'm really excited about because we've done a lot of that in Leeds and I've been doing that for so long. It's the first time I'm actually going to be able to be involved in a march that I'm not stewarding and running. So I'm really excited to just hold a banner instead of a megaphone. <laughs> But it'll be really fun to kind of just be with everyone, get that sense of like, I don't know, youth power. I came to COP really because I've been involved in environmental activism for a few years now. And it's kind of like a once in a lifetime thing. And it really feels that this is going to be the tipping point for our future. And this is the last opportunity for our governments to really bring it all together and try and make a change. So I kind of just came to see what was happening and to feel like I was involved and so I can say that I was here and in this moment. Yeah, amazing. Well, I can say you've put on some great strikes in Leeds. I've been to many or most of them. What, what about yourself? Yeah, my name's Anwen and what brought me was just, I think it's such a historical event and it's amazing to see it go on somewhere in the UK, in Glasgow. It feels like you're going to be part of some sort of history in the making, whether that is the right or the wrong. And I feel like you've got to engage with what's going on to know whether to fight against it or support it. of our home. 
you're all really welcome to come and put this coat on and we can sing you a chorus or a verse and a chorus or the whole coat song. It's quite a strong experience as it turns out. So, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm literally genuine invitation. If you need people to like that, I've just come out of an awesome event all about feminist climate justice and I'm here with one of the speakers. Do you want to introduce yourself and, and tell us what you're doing here at COP? My name is Marie-Christina Kuhl. I'm from Madagascar where I'm a social entrepreneur, a climate activist and eco-feminist. I'm currently leading the national platform on gender and climate justice and I'm here at COP26 as a party delegate for my delegation for Madagascar. This is my third COP. I came as a youth activist at COP21. Uh, I was uh, at COP25 as a gender advocate, but for civil society. And today I'm, I'm still working uh, on gender issues, trying to promote um, gender gender solutions and uh, those from communities especially. That's amazing and why do you think gender and I guess feminism as a topic are so kind of crucial to tackling the climate crisis? Um, because we are, we are still living in a very patriarchal society most of our of the countries in this world still live in the patriarchal society but with different levels uh, in Madagascar it's very strong and I, I take the example of Madagascar because we are among the top 10 most vulnerable countries regarding climate change impact. We are among the first victims but we pollute less um, and uh, today we are facing several impacts like droughts, cyclones uh, floods and the first victims of all these consequences are women and are vulnerable women living in, uh, in rural areas of Madagascar. Uh, why they are the first victim? I can share you some examples. Um, for example, imagine yourself being a woman and there's a period of drought. You, as a woman, <laughs> you, you, you have your period, right? Uh, how, how do you do when you don't when, when you have no water to clean yourself? How do you do when you live in a society when um, you are the, as a woman you are the one who needs to walk kilometers like 
20 kilometers to get access to the nearest water. But then when you come back home and you're exhausted, you have no right to drink this water. Men should drink first. Men eat more than you, even if you are very hungry and tired. You eat after the men. And we live in the, this kind of society when, where climate change affects the differently uh, men and women. And, and this is what happens in my country uh, today uh, when we are talking about uh, a famine. Madagascar is, is uh, now facing the, the first worldwide famine directly related to climate change with one million people affected uh, by this malnutrition and famine. And the women are the first victims. What, what would your number one priority be if you were the president of COP26? <laughs> What would be your kind of top priority to ensure an ambitious outcome? Um, first of all, I, <laughs> I'll kidnap all these <laughs> government members and president and I will put them in a room and force them to give the money to those uh, who are affected today. I'm sorry, but they, they, at, COP20, at COP21, they promised that this most polluting country, they are, they, they are the first responsible of these consequences today. Why people in Madagascar who have done nothing, we, we should face all, all of this. How can I explain this to all these people dying today? And, and so, so people, the, the, this government, they, they just should realize what is happening. They, they should not only talk about data and, I don't know, just consider human stories behind and all these people suffering today. Uh, so yes, I, I, if, if I have the chance to be the COP president, I will force everyone to, to do that. It will be a dictator. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, thank, thanks so much. I hope you have. I hope you have a great cop. And thank you. Yeah, I hope you can kind of get in there in the blue zone and <laughs> and, and get your voice across. <laughs> thank you for that. I'll do my best. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so it's Friday the 5th of November. We're on the streets with the Fridays for Future protest. There's tens of thousands of people out here. There's lots of chanting. Uh, and I'm just gonna have a little chat with one of the activists who's here and, and been here throughout COP26. Um, could you just tell us who you are and what you've been up to this week? Yeah, um, I'm Rawley. Um, and this week I've been here at the protests outside of COP to protest like the corrupt power dynamics that are going on within COP. What sort of drove you to want to come and spend your time here uh, on the streets and, and demanding change? Yeah, I think centralised power and hierarchy um, and world leaders are what's been at the forefront of failure for centuries 
So I just don't think this time it's going to change anything. I think we really need to dismantle the system and put marginalised voices at the front of it. Um, but that's not what this COP is going to do. This COP's very exclusionary. So I thought like I would come here to protest because it feels like the only viable option. And how has it actually been for you protesting? I know we've, we've seen police like kettling protesters and you know, the, there's a strong sense of overreaction that, that other activists are saying. What's it been like in your experience? Yeah, the police have been sort of, I mean, there's a lot of police. There's like 30,000 police that have been drafted in for this. Um, a few days ago, they kettled us in for hours and hours, around six hours. Um, there was like, we ran out of food almost, we ran out of water. Um, people were really cold and just wanted to go home. But they, they refused to let any of us go and they marched us on for miles. Um, there was people that were like at the front of the kettle that were crying saying they needed to get home to do things. Some people needed to go and get their medication and they just wouldn't let anyone leave. There was a lot of vulnerable people in that kettle and you know the police used their vulnerabilities to exploit them, a lot of them. How does it make you feel? What, does that kind of, does that put you off? protesting around climate justice or does that reinvigorate you? Um, no, it doesn't really put me off. Um, like I've grown up as a person of colour in this country that's faced a lot of abuse for that. So I'm kind of used to the abuse from the police. I've been targeted a lot myself as well after certain actions that I've done that I've got a lot of media attention and things. So I'm kind of thinking I'm in it for the long haul because even when I take a step back, I still get targeted by the police. So I'd rather be doing something and getting that targetedness than not be doing anything at all. Well, massive respect to you. Um, what what do you what do you kind of hope as as for, for some of the the actions throughout the the rest of the rest of COP? We're, we're sort of I think it's about day six of COP now. So, what are your hopes for the rest of the the two week period? Um, I'm just really hoping that you know a lot more action is taken over the next week and a few days that are left. But I hope it makes a lot of people realise as well that COP was never going to work. A lot of people thought that it was like our last chance and that it was really going to work. So a lot of people just stepped back and decided not to protest. But I think you know when it ends, we're going to see another surge of activism and people on the streets because people are going to realise that you know. Not only was this not our last chance, but you know we need to we need to do all that we can because our last chance is coming very soon. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, and good luck for the rest of the, the conference. Oh, thank you. I'm here with Rupert Reed, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. Not, not precisely co-founder. I helped launch Extinction Rebellion. Lovely. Thanks for correcting <laughs> me. Um, what can you see? How does this make you feel being here on a Friday for Future March, COP26? It's the 5th of November. Are you feeling positive about the amount of people that are here? It's a great question. So My feelings are mixed. Yeah, I'm feeling positive about the number of people are here. It's thrilling to see all the young people here. It's amazing to uh, meet some of them, to sense the energy, to see the unbelievable array of beautiful homemade posters that are here at the same time I feel troubled because I'm also spending half my time inside COP26 as a delegate and it's clear to me that the progress being made here is grossly inadequate and the future of these young people 
is being betrayed as we speak, as we march. And COP26 is not going to fix this. We need to be ready for a much larger mobilization in the wake of the failure of COP26. And that failure is coming. Do you think Extinction Rebellion and others like this are having a great impact here at COP? Do you think it would, it would be a very different feel to a conference if, if there weren't people out here on the street? Oh, yeah. It? Oh, it's so important to have uh, activists here, to have citizens here actively taking part. This is a moment that will live in history. History is going to be made. It's not going to be made by the leaders. It's being made by us. Amazing. Well, in, enjoy your day, enjoy, enjoy the conference, and I hope that being a delegate means that there are some kind of positives. You do get to, to meet some people and, and influence and change from the inside as well. Yeah, I mean, I've been running UN press conferences. I hosted a bunch of uh, amazing youth activists from around the world yesterday. You know, inside the UN, officially being uh, beamed around the world, and hopefully, you never know, being seen by the odd politician or business person. There's, there's important stuff happening inside COP26, but it's not important enough, if you get my meaning. There's even more important stuff happening outside. So it's, uh, it's really good to be here as part of this today. And we need more of this. So we need, we need more and more people doing activism and taking action on the grounds. Fantastic. Thanks for talking to me. Cheers. Whereabouts have you come from? We're, we are from Belgium. Amazing. And what what brought you to COP? Well, um, we are a youth movement, a youth organization who uh, fights for justice in uh, about any theme you can imagine. And the climate is a topic we are heavily involved in. We were in the protests in 2019. And, um, well, every time there's something to do, we are there as well. So, long live Red Fox. <laughs> Fantastic. And what are your plans for the, for the rest of COP? What are your hopes that something different might happen this time? Yeah. I think it's just very important to put the pressure on the politicians and the big companies because they have all the leverage to change everything, but there's just no political will, no economic will, because they're like trapped in a, a system that puts short-term short profits before long-term climate justice. And uh, we're here to put uh, pressure on them and uh, we'll stay here as long as necessary. Fantastic, well, yeah. enjoy. Thank you very much.
homeless on the dead planet. We cannot eat money. Thank you very much. Last week, my heart was broken by the people inside that cop building, by the world leaders who steal our sacred words and use them to defend and uphold the oppressive systems of capitalism and white supremacy, who tell us that action needed to prevent sea level rise engulfing my ancestral home in Jamaica is impossible or not practical. In this heartbreak, fear and despair, I felt weak, but I will allow myself the space for my heart to break so that the gold of community can be poured into those cracks and make it stronger, make it bigger, because every time my heart breaks, it is made stronger. The antidote to despair is not to run away or ignore the realities of the societal violence around us. It is not to ignore the violence of our siblings on the front lines that who experience at the hands of the neocolonial fossil fuel companies. It is not to ignore the hypocrisy of the UK government, the hosts of this conference who prop up these violent fossil fuel companies with four billion pounds of our public money in subsidies. We cannot be overwhelmed, we must act. These are last resort times. So do whatever you can and be audacious about how incredible the future we can create can be. We have to believe that we can achieve it. We must demand an end to capitalism. We must demand an end to white supremacy. We must demand black liberation. We must abolish prisons and the police. We must demand total liberation for all of us because that is climate justice. Our demands cannot be toned down or palatable. They should worry, disrupt, and challenge the status quo. New Guinea Island has become a colonized land by Indonesia today, having World's largest gold mine owned by a U.S. mining corporation. BP with having their one of the largest LNG gas projects and palm oil companies destroying our ancient lands. World's third largest lung threatened with extinction of how the people. If I reflect you, our current status, 4.6 billion years of life, to just 10 years to prevent irreversible destruction of Earth's ecosystems. What does innovation and development mean? So this is what climate justice is about. And if I may reflect one of the outcomes of the UN IPCC that states that just 5% of world's populations exist of indigenous communities have preserved more than 80% of world's remaining biodiversity. They are the most important stakeholders who have been ignored at COP26. Let me underline that. And if, you, if I may show you one other number, that 96% of all deforestations due to coal, mining, fossil fuel, cattle, happens on the same indigenous land such as the Amazon, West Papua and other parts of the global south. So the climate crisis happens on indigenous lands and is still happening there. But we have a way out. But we are not climate victims. We became climate leaders. Can I see fists up? We are the protectors of world's ecosystems. And yesterday, under the leadership of the provincial government, an indigenous-led government awaiting 
by His Excellency President Wyndham, we have launched a green state vision. Go visit it, www.greenstatefishing.info. We are taking the lead. We know how to manage pristine land. We know how to protect the world's third largest rainforest and preserve the world's largest tropical island. And we are taking the lead, kicking out these polluters and offering the world a solution. Thank you very much. And build Mujeres estamos dando ese mensaje para que la humanidad, lo, las generaciones que puedan vivir en el futuro, la vida del mundo que necesitan. Um, this is a message from indigenous women in, in the Amazon to keep oil in the ground, to stop mining. That is good for all of us, for indigenous people and for the world. And I'm going to sing this song to you now. crisis. We can't afford to allow the capitalist system, the billionaires, the CEOs and their politicians to continue on their wrecking path. We have to take the power out of the hands of those who do not care. The alternative, the alternative needs to be socialist. It needs to be based on the public ownership and democratic control of the major corporations and finance sector. to develop an, in, an international plan to meet the needs of people and the planet, not just the bank accounts of the rich. Yes. Now, the politicians have been telling us to be realistic, to be moderate. And in response to that, I want to repeat the words of Scottish-born Irish trade unionist James Connolly. Our demands most moderate are, we only want the earth. Thank you. Historically, Africa is responsible for only 3% of global emissions. And yet Africans are suffering some of the most brutal impacts fueled by the climate crisis. But while the African continent, while the global south is on the front lines of the climate crisis, they are not on the front pages of the world's newspapers. We've seen activists from the most affected areas being erased from pictures, from conversations, and removed from rooms. But how will we have climate justice if people from the most affected areas are not being listened to? The climate crisis is here now, but the dry land can be glad again. The farms can blossom again. The animals can rejoice because there is water to drink. There is a loud singing in once patched lands. 
the pain and suffering is gone. There is a celebration of the people because the disasters are gone. Our history is visible. There is no fear of losing it. We won't have to just tell our children about our cultures because they will see and experience them themselves. We won't have to fight for limited resources because there will be enough for everyone. There is food to drink, there is food to eat and water to drink. Children can go to school with no fear of dropping out. There is joy and singing because finally, no child can be forced into marriage. Once flooded places will dry and bloom again. There is triumph in the city because the power of the people finally won. The world is green again. Nature has been restored. The planet and creation is respected. Another world is necessary. Another world is possible. And this is just a glimpse of it. And today, we shall continue to fight on in everywhere we can. We cannot give up now. We need to continue holding leaders accountable for their actions. We cannot keep quiet about climate injustice. Your actions matter. No action is too small to make a difference, and no voice is too small to make a difference. Let us keep the faith for the future. Which faith will give us the hope for the world not yet seen, but the world that we can imagine, the world that I just told you about? And above all, the love for the people and for the planet. Three things should stay with us as we continue to organize and mobilize and strike and speak up and demand for climate justice. That is faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these things is love because when we continue to love the people, when we continue to love the planet, that will be the strength we need to fight for a future that is sustainable, that is healthy, that is clean and equitable for all of us. Thank you. Speaker of the night, I am very, very excited to welcome Greta Thunberg. Thank you, everyone, for coming. What a great day! It is not a secret that COP26 is a failure. It should be obvious that we cannot solve a crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place. And more and more people are starting to realize this. Many are starting to ask themselves, what will it take for the people in power to wake up? But let's be clear, they are already awake. They know exactly what they are doing. They know exactly what priceless values they are sacrificing to maintain business as usual. And COP26 has been named the most exclusionary COP ever. This is no longer a climate conference. This is now a Global North Greenwash Festival. 
two-week-long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. The most affected people in the most affected areas still remain unheard. And the voices of future generations are drowning in their greenwashed and empty words and promises. But the facts do not lie, and we know that our emperors are naked. And the climate and ecological crisis, of course, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is directly tied to other crises and injustices that date back to colonialism and beyond. Crises based on the idea that some people are worth more than others and therefore have the right to steal others, to exploit others and to steal their land and resources. And it is very naive of us to think that we could solve this crisis without addressing the root cause of it. But this is not going to be spoken about inside the COP. It's just too uncomfortable. It's much easier for them to simply ignore the historical debt that the countries of the global north have towards the most affected people and areas. And the question we must now ask ourselves is, what is it that we are fighting for? Are we fighting to save ourselves and the living planet? Or are we fighting to maintain business as usual? Our leaders say that we can have both. But the harsh truth is that that is not possible in practice. The people in power can continue to live in their bubble filled with their fantasies, like eternal growth on a finite planet and technological solutions that will suddenly appear seemingly out of nowhere and will erase all of these crises just like that. All this while the, while the world is literally burn burning on fire and while the people living on the front lines are still bearing the brunt of the climate crisis. They can continue to ignore the consequences of their inaction, but history will judge them poorly and we will not accept it. The people in power are obviously scared of the truth. Yet, no matter how hard they try, they cannot escape from it. They cannot ignore the scientific consensus, and above all, they cannot ignore us, the people, including their own children. They cannot ignore our screams as we reclaim our power. We are tired of their blah, blah, blah. Our leaders are not needing. This is what leadership looks like.
We have the knowledge and we have the finances to overcome this crisis. And what do we see? We're still fueling fossil fuels with taxpayers' money. And this needs to stop now, exactly now. There's no reason not to stop this now. So let's go and march for climate justice and for the end of fossil fuel subsidies. So it's Saturday, 6th of November. It's the day after the Fridays for Future march and we're back again on the same bridge in Kelvin Grove Park for another march, this time a global march for climate justice. I'm currently stood quite a busy spot, lots of socialists around. I'm, I'm here with the Scottish Labour contingent uh, and I'm just gonna have a catch up with a, a local councillor who's here demonstrating with a placard. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us why you're here? Yeah, my name is Eva Murray. I'm a local councillor in Glasgow City Council. Um, climate justice is the most pressing um, thing that we're facing as an international community right now. So I think it's important that we are here um, as a Scottish Labour movement and as a wider internationalist movement showing support in our city alongside all the other um, internationalist delegations who are here today to show that this is an internationalist problem. This is a worldwide issue and we have a duty to fight it just as that. What sort of, I guess, responsibility do you feel as, as the host city for, for COP to, I guess, lead, lead by example as a, as a council? Absolutely. You know, there's the, the wider what is the Glasgow Agreement and our city will always be, you know, tarred or celebrated, uh, whatever that makes of that. But on the local level, at the grassroots for Glasgow as a city, absolutely. Um, in the last couple of years since we got um, named as the host city, we have been pushing for us to make targets, but not just set targets, but actually take the action to make sure that, that we that we you know achieve them. Um, and that for me, that has been you know going out to communities and saying, how do we make things better? What is the things impacting you right now? And how do we you know tackle this as a city? But also, like you say, set the example for other cities around the world and other places around the world. That's great. And when I see kind of elected politicians at protests. It always makes me and I think others think aren't you guys the ones in power sort of you know if if you're here demanding change what what does that show about I guess the power structures we have and the, the ability we have you know as elected officials to actually make the changes we need so yeah how would you kind of respond to that yeah I mean I'm a local councillor I'm very much at the local government level we have our own frustrations when we see world leaders sitting in a summit making decisions that we know ultimately we will have to implement at the devolved level of Scottish Parliament. We have our own frustrations because, you know, lack of funding to actually implement these stuff. So we want to speak to, you know, we want to say to the world leaders, those in power at the devolved level of Parliament and saying, yes, you're making these decisions, yes, you're going out there and, and talking about these. It can't just be rhetoric. You have to, you know, fund local government fairly so we can actually implement the solutions because ultimately the, we are the ones who are going to put in the changes that impact people every single day and actually will tackle uh, the climate emergency. And just just finally, you, you've got a great placard here that I believe is, you, you, you've brought out the closet from uh, a protest in 2019. I guess reflecting on the fact that, you know, two years ago you were out, presumably at a protest, marching, I don't know if it was a youth climate strike or, or what it was, but yeah, how, how do you kind of feel now, two years later, that you're having to do it again? We're, we're at this quite pivotal moment in terms of 
kind of global negotiations on this. Yeah, how, how, how do you feel? How sort of positive or, or not do you feel right now? I think it says a lot. I was looking back at my, my placard that has a lot of asks on it and how relevant they all still are and how much, you know, there's not been much progress on, on any of them and, we, you know, um, there's still so much for us to do. So I think there, I think we have to be optimistic. I think we have to say we are where we are right now. We, we can't afford to not see this as an opportunity, uh, but we can't stop fighting. We can't stop, you know, raising our voices and, and holding all politicians, including me, to account on, on what we are um, doing. So, I mean, there is a, a sense of, of sadness there because we haven't made the progress that I'd hoped maybe to, at least even two years ago. But I think we need to be optimistic and during COP in the next week and also going forward. That's great. Well, enjoy the match today. Thanks very much. Thanks for speaking to me. So I'm here on a quite windy street in the centre of Glasgow. I'm just ahead of the Fridays for Future block at the Global March for Climate Justice. Pretty exciting really. Um, there's a bit of a ring around the front of the Fridays for Future block. Greta is in there amongst a load of other activists. That was some locals hanging out the window of the apartments, looking down on the street, smiling and cheering at Greta. She's also in there with a total kind of international crowd of activists, particularly those from the most affected people and areas. Vanessa Nakate gave a speech just before Greta yesterday at the Fridays for Future March. But they're all out here again today. Feels like there's a lot more people today, despite the wind and the wet. Today it's a broader age range. There's people from all walks of life, trade unions, Extinction Rebellion. An interesting block that I couldn't work out who they were, but they were sort of already getting a lot of police attention. So interesting to see uh, see who they 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 were and are. But yeah, there's a lot of again hope, positivity, determination, and I think this sort of movement is only going to build. It's already built since 2019, but I think it's going to keep building over the coming years, and particularly depending on the outcome of COP26. I think whatever the outcome, activists, and probably myself, will feel that it's not enough. And that's just based on prior experience of seeing what our world leaders are doing, which feels like very, very little. As Greta would say, it's all blah, 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 and almost no action. Some people think that's is it, is it worse to pledge action and not deliver it? Is that, is that sort of a form of greenwashing? Personally, I think it's better that they have targets 
and that at least they've set a direction of travel and we can push for them to travel that way faster. But it's still incredibly frustrating at the lack of progress and the lack of time we have now. After decades of knowing about this problem, it feels like we've barely taken a single step towards addressing it. That's how I feel, I think that's how a lot of the people on the streets here feel. But at least there's thousands of us out here, and it's not just Glasgow, it's around the world. And we'll keep going. streets with the Global March for Climate Justice. Just bumped into Raul Reynolds from Enter Shikari. Was at your gig on Wednesday this week. You're here in Glasgow. Tell us what, why, you, why you wanted to be here for COP26. Um, I just, we couldn't not be here, you know, like this is, the climate crisis has been something we've been sort of heavily involved in but <laughs> no, that makes it sound like we're, 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 we're to blame but I mean every, every, we're all hypocrites to some point and we've all it's partly to blame but yeah we've been um, talking about it for years and it just felt like we should be here to soak up the atmosphere to make connections to learn um, to support the activism that's going on um, yeah and, and any excuse to get back to Scotland as well really fab and how, how were those shows for you were, were they kind of extra special in some way because you knew that what a sort of momentous time this is for, for the climate. Yeah, well, I think there does seem to be like a real sort of air of like real determined like proactivity and like not so much like optimism because people are realists. People know that the, the current sort of ways <laughs> that we're trying to affect change don't seem to be working. You know, every COP pledges are made and we're, everyone gets hopeful about, oh, these pledges are great and then like they're broken or they're not lived up to properly. Um, so it's, just, it's a very slow moving beast, obviously, the, 
the global uh, global management in effect, you know. But I think it at this one there does seem to be an extra sense of like real broad waking up of like society, you know. Like obviously the youthful activism has been incredible over the last like couple of years. Um, there's been a, a real injection of like energy and passion and intelligence as well. Like you know the the sheer eloquence of like a lot of the the youth speakers at the marches that have been going on this week and the last few years really it's just it's spellbinding so it's i think there's a lot to be hopeful about the dinosaurs could not see that asteroid coming the dinosaurs could not see that asteroid coming What's our fucking excuse? And I know you're you're speaking at a panel event later today at, at the at the students union here in Glasgow. What what's your kind of main message I guess for for the kind of solutions we need to, to get out of this mess. I mean, we, we can all sort of talk about, you know, the personal things we can all do, but I think for me, it is holding the energy sector to account. Because like, if we all do our personal changes, great. But if the energy sector doesn't have a complete overhaul, we're all fucked, you know, that, that is the main perpetrator here. So I think putting all the pressure on like the, you know, big oil, the non-renewables industries, um, and making sure that they, you know, really start to put their money where their mouth is and, and change. And obviously, that's difficult in a capitalist system. But even within this system, we, we've seen like the last few years, um, investments in like renewable industries and stuff have actually been. There's been greater return on them compared to oil. So, so what happens is, I think, it's very slow, and it's possibly going to be too slow. But the changes are happening, and the money's starting to be directed in the right places. And that's one of the big successes about this COP so far, I think, that finally the economics and the finance is actually moving. Far too slow, nowhere near good enough, but it, it, it's, it's something. Just one mile away, over 190 delegates, delegates, delegate delegates, about to try and sort this shit out. Just finally, you're a musician, you're, you're an artist. What role do you think your kind of sector, your kind of the cultural status of, of music, which obviously, you know, almost everyone is a, a music fan. So yeah. what what role do you see yourself and, and fellow musicians having in, in getting us where we need to be? I think it's just, you know, uniting people, bringing people together, spreading information as well, you know, we're, we're in such a difficult place where the mainstream media has been pretty awful over the past few years. Again, this it's improved this year, but um, and then alternative media, a lot of that 
is so drenched in like conspiracy theory shit and far right stuff so it's really difficult to get like good information out there and like what we do with shikari is like try and get like you know interview the climate scientists themselves and trying to get that information out as well so so people can sort of hopefully trust us because they know there's no we we're not beholden to any shareholders or any like vested interests so like just getting independent information bringing people together um and making it joyous you know like things like these like there's a lot of beauty and just human connection and, and finding those communities making those connections and we and we can uh, sort of the sky's the limit then you know when as soon as you get people power behind things it's uh, yeah it gets really interesting and we'll, we'll close off there just as the uh, the band arrive but yeah i think you're right it is interesting that the power of music and the power of a march like this that you know on the face of it to an outsider it could just be a boring march but actually things like this brass band that are about to yeah. arrive actually bring smiles to people's faces and help people to have a bit of a sense of positivity around around where, where we're going but the fact that there are so many people trying to move towards towards change yeah it's, it's absolutely beautiful it's, it's a joy to be here that's my friend so I'm going to have to raise thanks so much yeah. big up thank you um, for having me So it's Sunday 7th of November and we're here at the People's Summit and it's day one of the People's Summit. Uh, I've just come out of uh, an excellent event where we've been looking at some of the kind of false solutions that are often proposed often to, to maintain the status quo. And I've uh, just, just got a moment here with Professor Kevin Anderson, who's from the University of Manchester, who was one of the speakers at, at tonight's event. Tell us what you've been telling people about net zero as a concept and, and why you think that's flawed? You know, net zero is this new phrase that's only really occurred in the last three to four years and it's, it's everywhere now and it's a, it's a language that allows us to effectively move the significant reductions in emissions that we need to make today out to some point in the future. So it's, it's shifting the burden from today's generation, from today's policymakers, to put in, put in policies that are really going to be very hard to, to deliver on, but nevertheless we have to try, like cutting back on um, airport expansion or stopping any airport expansion or how often we fly, to put in far more renewables than we're actually talking about, to electrify much of our energy system, but not in 2013, 2014, 2015. But what are they going to do this afternoon? What are they going to do tomorrow? What are they going to do by 2025? What are we going to do by 2030? The time frame to keep the emissions anywhere near a 1.5 to 2 degrees C thresholds is really between now and 2030. Not to start delivering in 2030, but to start delivering now and be almost getting down to zero emissions, particularly from energy, by 2030 to 2035 for the wealthy parts of the world. Net zero hides all of that, brings out dates like 2050, when of course the policymakers are either dead or retired. Yeah, it's kind of shocking when you, when you think about it like that, isn't it? And I think I guess one thing I'm quite interested to hear your, your thoughts on are, are the sort of interplay between, I guess, academics like yourself doing research, producing the science and the evidence, people that are out on the streets like we saw over the last couple of days with Fridays for Future, uh, the COP26 coalition with the, the Global March for Climate Justice yesterday, and then obviously we've got the policymakers. And I think it's interesting to see how, the, how those messages sometimes filter through over time you, you know 
people like yourself will say things and they'll get start to get picked up and maybe tweaked slightly by activists activist groups but eventually actually we do see some of those messages or climate emergency declarations filter through to, to governments and businesses where do you see yourself along that kind of trajectory of actors yeah well, as a citizen, I have my views of what we should do. But they're just my views as a citizen, along with lots of other people. As an academic, I undertake my research and I, and I communicate it clearly and bluntly. I try and do my research carefully with other colleagues, but then I just say it as I see it from our analysis. Whether that is liked or disliked, I don't care about, really. And if it's picked up by activists or picked up by whoever else, that, that is absolutely fine. My impression is that actually a lot of the, what you're calling activists here, a lot of the civil society movements, a lot of the youth movements and so forth, are actually are more in line with what the science is saying is necessary to deliver on our Paris 1.5 to 2 degrees C commitments than indeed many of the academics and the climate scientists are saying. The difference there is between the climate science and what we need to do about it. And I think actually a lot of the activists groups and so forth are, are discussing a sort of time frame and a rate of change that is much more in line with the science than the scientists are then saying, because the scientists are, are, are using all sorts of ruses and techniques, not all, but some of them are, particularly the more senior ones, um, ruses and techniques to delay action today to make it more aligned with what, is, what they consider is politically palatable. So there's this, you know, often very well-meaning, but they're adjusting their message to the public from what they say privately to other academics and, and to people like myself. Um, and so I think that's a really dangerous situation to be in. The academics should have the courage to speak out directly and clearly the results of their research. They should not be colouring it for any audience. And if we do, if we end up doing that, we're no different to, to you know, political spin doctors. That's all we end up being. But we have a role in society, and that is to, to do our work carefully and communicate it clearly. I think that's a powerful kind of call to action, really, isn't it? And it's about sort of almost bias. Some of that might be implicit or, you know, things that you don't even realise you're, you're doing. Um, tell us just finally about your experience at, at COP26. Do, do you see yourself as a sort of troublemaker when you're there in the blue zone, knowing that actually, you know, you're saying things that, that some governments don't want to hear? And I have to say, some academics colleagues don't want to hear, at least not, not said in public. Um, I don't see myself as a troublemaker. I mean, I, I find it annoying that I sit at a, some, some events where senior academics, particularly involved in the policy realm, end up uh, adjusting their message to, to fit with, with, uh, with what is politically acceptable. But then I also go to other scientific events where the scientists are being just very clear about you know, what's happening in Greenland or what's happening in Antarctica. And I find that really fascinating. And I find it quite uplifting to hear science unadulterated by political spin. Um, so do I see myself as a troublemaker overall? Certainly, I think what I say is often uncomfortable for quite a lot of people because um, I'm fairly direct about my views on, on some of the more senior elements of, of academia, not all, but some, um, or on the failure of the mainstream journalists to, uh, to really um, to be investigative journalists. They just end up being reporters of, of government spin lines, as far as I can tell. So I think there are, there are lots of people who are abdicating their responsibility, particularly in the blue zone, and so what we end up having is this sort of debate politically, which I call sort of planet politics, which is where it's so far removed from what the science is requiring. And so we've got the science on one side, if you like, and the, and the, and the politics on another. And that would be fine if the journalists and the senior academics were, were the people that joined those together and, and showed the shortfalls here and there, but we're not. So there's a void between those two. So negotiations are completely separate of the world of 
physics and science. And of course, ultimately, if we were to respond to climate change, it's the physics and the science that will play out. It will always beat ephemeral economics. It will always beat what's politically palatable. And the sad message in that is the physics will play out in the, in the lives of people in the future, particularly some of the poor people who have not had any responsibility in bringing about climate change. So that, that is my real sort of deep concern. There's a very moral framing to the scientific questions we should be asking and the policy responses we should be, we should be generating here at COP. Great. Well, thanks so much for talking to me and for yeah everything that you've been doing this week and next week. Uh, that's my pleasure. It's Tuesday the 9th of November, just on the train home from Glasgow, approaching Leeds, not too far away, and I've just got chatting to uh, a fellow attendee at COP26, one of the delegation from Uganda. Would you like to just introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about your experience at COP26? Oh, thank you so much. I am Sam Mugumi from Uganda. I'm a delegate for COP26. I work with Minister of Finance, Planning and Economic Development. I'm an assistant commissioner on macroeconomic policy development. And uh, basically what we've seen get ourselves as Minister of Finance who got interested in climate statistics based on our on our economy which is based on natural resources. Our people are dependent on natural resources and anything that impacts on natural resources like forestry, like water affects the growth of our economic our economic growth and that links us much to the climate change issues and that's why I'm here and that's why I'm a delegate. COP twenty six, yes good it was good but uh, many people many delegates i could see a lot of interest coming up i'm looking at forward to getting the decisions coming out and we we'll see what to do but from our end like i've told you before it's more we, we are more into adaptation we do mitigation but our stage is more with adaptation we know when it comes to emissions as a country we don't emit much our contribution is less but we are very sure that our absorption capacity for carbon in terms of carbon credit is high. And that could be the best thing we can offer to the world to increase our absorption capacity and reduce the destruction. So that, and that comes along because we, as a government, where I work, we, we are faced with challenges of reducing poverty, making sure there's employment, making sure people have food to eat, Children have to go to school, but we have to do it in a good, a green way that we're calling it green growth. That's a big challenge, and that brings me to COP26. My main interest really is on Article 6, carbon markets, carbon trade, and carbon pricing. What will come out of that, in my view, will drive the way the absorption capacity of developing countries like Uganda, especially Africa, is going to manage the reserves and how the developed countries will behave. That's, that's super interesting. I, I think that well, there's a couple of things that, that I, I want to know more about. Um, and one of those, I guess, is in the years that I've been, I guess, closely following climate activism and the sort of climate change, what, what was a debate and is, is now uh, almost totally kind of acknowledged um, crisis that we're in, I think it's e interesting over, over recent years I've seen the discourse change a bit more towards climate justice and acknowledging that we're not all equally responsible, we're not all equally affected 
from your perspective, do, do you think that that's going far enough yet? Is that is that is that central enough to the negotiations that are happening no. at COP26, or, or are we not there yet? Uh, the question I would start with: uh, We are not yet there, in my view, because yes, I can see increment in acknowledgement of our responsibilities and the fact that we are at different levels of, of emission, of kind of whatever we're doing. But but I think there's still the justice is is, is we're not there really. If you look at the developed and developing countries. Uh, for, for example, when we we had a uh, meeting, the meeting we had, we we could see the developed countries' agenda. Okay, reduction of emissions, but what are they doing exactly? Are the targets going to lead us to what we want? Are the different scenarios being going to lead us what we want? And if we talk about that, and we are talking about net emission, are we give, giving more capacity to those countries that have the capacity to absorb? absorb so still the a lot uh, it's we are talking we are writing arguments we are doing but practically what are we doing in my view it's not yet there we are not yet there but we are moving yeah and i think that's that's kind of maybe how it, certainly how i feel about cop 26 in general it, yeah. i think be, even before it started i thought whatever happens here is not going to be enough but hopefully it'll be at least some small steps in the right direction. I've been covering kind of the the activism, the marches, the the strikes in Glasgow over the last week or two. What's your kind of perception of of that activism? I know there are prominent activists from from Uganda. Um, yeah, well, what's your involvement been, or what, what's your what's your take on on all of that activity? Uh, to be honest, on Saturday, I was really, really impressed seeing a lot of people in the streets going, you know, and I kept wondering how how were they mobilized? But for me, the fact is, this is increasingly coming out clear that people now are understanding the impact of climate change to their lives. And uh, being in Glasgow, seeing people of all different ages coming together and uh, making, you know, noise and doing what near the the center the science center i saw two reverends kneeling down and praying i think they prayed for the whole day and i kept asking myself look these people now understand there's a lot of activism and we want it if we have to change this thing here and and it's growing up in uganda yes there's activism for example even this week there were children in Entebbe who dressed up and they were saying, stop climate change, uh, you know, be friendly with the environment, make sure there's no climate change, stop the bad actions you're doing. So there was marching in Entebbe also. And the, and, and the activism is high because the issues are real. The issues are real when there's lack of water, rain, it comes to a drought, and there's lack of food, it's famine. When there's a lot of rain that comes up, because of issues of climate change, it's too much. There's landslide. There's the you know people have to be moved to camps and the rest like that is happening in most of the western part of my country, Uganda. So the issues are there and people are coming up to shout and say stop. However, there's one thing when it comes to countries like UK where we are, 
activism is taken seriously, very, very much seriously, compared to some of our countries where then you may march, even police may stop you at some point and say, no, you don't have to do this. But here, and we need to do it this way because we see what is happening. It was a good example and I encourage it so much. That's great. And, and like you say, the particular activists, Greta Thunberg, Vanessa Nakate, who I think is from Uganda, yeah. they, they've had the chance, I know they give speeches, they, they gave speeches on, on Friday, at the climate strike and I know I saw pictures of them both meeting Nicola Sturgeon as well yeah, yeah. have you got experience kind of engaging with Vanessa uh, back back home uh, no I have not I've not engaged with them much but I know they are there and they didn't want to talk about names right at the beginning but I know they are we have strong people really we have, we have like uh, organizations like joint joint effort to save the environment Jesse we have Sisberg uh, the, the number of them, Advocacy for Coalition Accord, these are really agencies that are against misuse of, of them and making sure actions, the right actions are taken into consideration for climate change. Uh, we, we, we are strong, but I was impressed by what was happening here. 50,000 people and more, I would like to gather a group of Latin Kampala and see what happens. Yeah, well, I think it, it, it gave me a lot of hope as well. I think I've been in some, some relatively big marches in, in the UK, but I, th I think that's the biggest I've, I've ever been in. And it's, you know, I'm f fortunate that, that COP26 was relatively close to where I live in Leeds. What will your final kind of thoughts be? We're on the train now, we're, we're leaving Glasgow. I know some of your fellow Ugandan delegates are, are still up there continuing the negotiations. What are your final kind of reflections on your experience taking part in, in your first COP as well? It's a meeting with many people. And everybody's kind of having a meeting here and there and making decisions. But the best thing I saw that it is, it is a, a meeting where many people come and you do network and you can easily change the world together because the whole world was here in my view. I met people, I met people from South Africa, I met Rwanda, my neighbor, I met, we did had a meeting with the Minister of Liberia, we were talking about developing an African Carbon Trade Association. Yeah, I had, I had Finland, everybody, we were talking and we were kind of having synergies and seeing how best we can encourage our governments to take up actions. And, and it's helpful. As I go home, like you said, I want us to be better. Maybe the next COP we should have see results and see that we're moving forward and that we are taking action on our agreements. Like I said, when I was starting, I'm looking ahead to say, seeing carbon credits, upgrading carbon, you know, the pricing going high, 20, 20, no, it should be higher than that. In our meeting, we talked about 150 per ton. So I'm looking at those, those proposals being worked on and I know the future might be good if, if we get the right people in the offices. Fantastic. Well, thank, thanks so much and, and I'm, I'm glad you're feeling hopeful and positive. Uh, it's, it's starting to rub off on me as well. <laughs> uh, so yeah, safe, safe journey home and, and thanks for talking to me. Thank you so much. I was privileged to find you on the, on the train. You gave me food. 
you asked me about my thoughts on, on climate change and COP26 in general. That was a big privilege. I'm, I'm a statistician, but highly, highly interested in climate change actions, biodiversity, and environment. I've looked at a number of things. I've worked in Windy, I've worked in Ruenzori, Chivali National Park. I've counted gorillas, I've counted chimpanzees, and those are both, that's, that's my, someone who counts animals. That's the biggest interest I have in this. And I'm happy for you to have interviewed me. Thank you. Fab, thanks so much. Welcome. It's Sunday, the 14th of November. COP26 has now officially ended. I'm back in Leeds at my house, just taking a moment to reflect on the whole process, the negotiations, and the end result. Late last night, countries agreed to the Glasgow Climate Pact. It's a three or four page document outlining the next steps, the ambition, the pledges, or as Greta would put it, the blah, blah, blah. Commentators, activists, scientists, politicians, journalists are now in a bit of a competition really to argue about whether the Glasgow Climate Pact is broadly a good thing or broadly a bad thing. From where I'm standing, neither are right. You can't paint this as something that's going to save the day because chances are it won't. Equally, you can't paint it as useless and worthless because I believe we're better off having something like this, something that sets the direction for all of the countries, all of the people, the organizations, the businesses. We're better off having this and having a clear sense of direction than being without one. But after 26 conferences of the parties, it's clear this process doesn't work in any meaningful carbon emissions evidence-based sense. The emissions have continued rising for 26 years after agreements, pacts, promises, almost all of which have been unkept. The positives I take from COP26 are in my own personal experiences of being out on the streets, surrounded by dedicated, often scared people like myself, but scared into mobilization, directing their fear into anger and their anger into action as some of the youth activists said. I was extremely lucky to be able to go to COP26 with it being just a three or four hour train ride north of where I am here in Leeds. I take huge inspiration from all the people I met along the way. I hope to be able to stay in touch with some of those, continue building networks, building alliances, and doing what I think is best to 
avoid catastrophic climate change. And that is to continue with activism, to continue pressuring those in charge, and showing that the people are demanding change. The last thing we want to see is a disorderly, chaotic transition away from fossil fuels. But that's coming whether we like it or not. But by facing up to that reality, preparing for the changes that are coming, we can ensure that those most vulnerable, most affected and least responsible for the climate emergency are protected where they have never been before. As a white, heterosexual male living in the global north, some of the people that made the biggest impact on me at COP26 were those often marginalised voices, those from the global south, those fighting for feminist climate justice, the indigenous leaders that have been fighting colonialism for decades. They're the ones I look to. They're the ones I want to support. I want to get behind, follow their lead. And the young people, still taken to the streets, speaking truth to power, and trying to wrangle their own seat at the negotiating table. Someone proposed that at the next COP, only people that will be alive in 2050 should even be allowed to take part. I think that shows quite beautifully how focusing on 2050 and not focusing on the here and now is clearly a mistake. So I just want to end by saying thank you. Thank you to all the amazing people who spoke to me over the last couple of weeks. And not just for speaking to me. Thank you to everyone who was there, putting pressure on, fighting for the survival of our species and for the dignity and survival of those in the global south, the poorest and the marginalised communities around the world who are going to suffer and are suffering the most and the worst from the climate crisis. COP26 may be over and in some ways it feels like the end of a process, the end of a kind of crescendo around climate action. The job we all have now is to make sure this isn't the end of anything, this is the start of something more, something something positive, something beautiful, something that focuses on people. The climate crisis isn't just a scientific, evidence-based problem. It's a social justice problem, and we need to treat it like that. So thank you for listening. Thank you for everything you're doing. And let's go on even stronger than we were before. I've been Simon Moore for Climactic. I hope you have a great day. Music has come from Tom Day. Thank you to Mark Spencer for help with the production.
The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.